All right, good morning. Thanks very much. I'm always very uh, grateful for and humbled by the opportunity to preach before the chapel that made me and built me and uh, before so many people who have discipled me all through the years. And I feel very um, privileged to have had so many people disciple me over the years because uh, I've seen a lot of my friends over through my life leave the church altogether. Calvary or not. I've watched a lot of my friends leave the church. And there's been times in my life where I feel like I could have been one of them. So I'm very grateful for that. And one of the things that I think about, it's, it's cited very frequently, but one of the things I think about are how many young people are leaving the church. And this is a statistic that has kind of flashed, I think, in a, a rather unproductive way a rather like fear tactic way of you don't want to be seen, don't leave the church because you don't want to be seen as an apostate. And, you know, not that that isn't valid, but I think there are productive ways that we can approach that. And to kind of arrive at a place of where, where could the most productive solution be, I just pulled up the most recent uh, statistics I could find and it's really interesting on a website called Church Track. You can look it up yourself. Uh, I think it was very interesting. It broke down the different generations as well. And uh, the numbers for Gen Z, there's tons of different studies. They arrive at different numbers. They arrive somewhere between the number of 50% and like 75% usually leave the church by the time they hit college. And, you know, College can mean, you know, they still believe, but they're just not in attendance. You know, you can't really say that they are apostates or something like that. But, you know, they're not putting it first in their life. And one of the things uh, on the survey that Gen Z, uh, Gen Z millennials, they had to fill out, one of the questions they had to answer was, uh, what are you looking for in a church? And Two of the things I thought was really interesting was, you know, they want faith practices that make a positive impact around the world uh, and faith practices that are immediately relevant to their daily life. In my experience, I have seen that a lot of young people, especially second-generation Christians, their faith, because, you know, maybe, you know, they weren't allowed to run wild and commit horrible sin that their faith is not as real to them as first-generation Christians. First-generation Christians tend to have made a lot of mistakes before they were saved. So they can kind of see how it all fits together. And it's not like second-generation Christians should live that way. But they are missing, I think, and I can relate to this, the aspect of their belief that is personal and real to them. Believable, And so we, mu- we have to ask ourselves, well, what tools does the Bible give us in order to make our faith real on a daily basis? Something that is personal to us, that we carry with us as we uh, live our daily lives. Uh, what is that element? And I think that element is the idea of walking by faith. This is an idea, uh, we'll go straight to the passage where it comes from, 
but the idea of walking by faith. It is a tool that God has given us. Uh, the Bible, I, uh, I think, answers two questions about the idea of walking by faith that we must integrate and make personal in our lives if we are to live the Christian and disciple life as we continue. Uh, so if you're going, well, faith, haven't we already talked about that? Yes, it's true. Larry just preached a giant two-part series on the idea of faith, but he kind of approached it more from a theological angle, an angle of uh, faith is uh, it's better than works for your salvation, and uh, you live by faith in the sense that you realize that you're no longer tied to the law. And that's an important first step in this idea. We'll define it, of course. But we're going to be going over a more practical idea, the idea of uh, how do I you know, trust my finances, how do I trust my, my living, my, you know, my career choices, or whatever it be. That's what we're going over today. So walking by faith. To briefly uh, recall, we do kind of have to define faith, and Larry did give us a good definition. My, my, uh, my personal uh, definition of faith, just faith, not walking by faith, but just faith, is this. Faith is an actionable confidence based in the nature, revelations, promises, and commands of God. It's an actionable con- uh, confidence in each of those things about the Lord. So uh, to check briefly on the mention where this idea of walking by faith comes from, uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. The whole Bible uh, speaks on this idea that faith is an actionable context. Larry kind of went over how the word has changed or it's been used in different ways to kind of refer to a like a, a belief in something to where there's no proof. And that's not the kind of faith that the Bible talks about. It's not talking about something abstract or existential. It's something, it's holding on to the things that we know, even if we can't always see them going on. We know that they're going on. Second Corinthians, for the idea of walking by faith, uh, we can start in, I'm going to just quickly start from verse 1. For we know that, If our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Again, uh, we know. Earthly, uh, eternal in the heavens, for for this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation from uh, which is in heaven. And if we continue down to verse 6, it says, So we are always confident, knowing that, that while we are at home in the body, we are absent with the Lord. Or the other way, once we are absent with the body, we are present with the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, Sometimes this verse is misconstrued to mean, I walk without understanding, and I just press forward with faith. That's not true. We walk with faith, not by sight. Literally, in uh, in these times, seeing was believing. The Jews were exis- or, uh, empirical people. Seeing was proof. And faith is our proof. So we can know that we have a home in heaven when we uh, pass away because we understand all of these things about God. We know God. We know God. 
So that's the kind of faith we're talking about, but it, it uh, frames it in the way of walking by faith. It's not just we have faith. It's walking by faith. So what is this walking by faith? Like I was saying, the Bible answers two questions about walking by faith that we must make personal and integrate into our lives. The first question that the Bible answers about walking by faith is why is walking by faith important? We're going to just get it out of the way before we even talk about it. Why is this idea important? Why is walking by faith important? The second question that the Bible answers about walking by faith is what does walking by faith look like? Not just as simple as how do I do it? The Bible doesn't really define the word faith very strictly. It shows it. It kind of displays it more like a formula rather than a definition. It shows us a lot of what it looks like without giving you the textbook uh, definition. And if you're thinking of one specific verse in your mind, just be patient, get to it. It's a little bit different than, excuse me, than you might think. Uh, so let's start with the first question. Why is walking by faith important? Let's go to a very familiar passage. We're going to go to James 1. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Flipping there myself. The book of James is really interesting. I remember the first time uh, JC taught it to us in youth group. It was like, it's a gut punch. And it is a gut punch, 100%. Uh, kind of in a different way than I originally understood back then when I was first taught it. And it's very interesting if we start in uh, verse 2. The first answer to the question of why is walking by faith important is that it produces character in us. In verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that your fa- the testing of your faith produces patience. Or I actually really like how the ESV renders uh, patience as steadfastness. The idea that you have a character that endures through trials. It produces, uh, it produces a, a solid, not a weakness through difficult things. So uh, it produces patience. And if we continue through to verse 4, it says, But let patience, or steadfastness, have its perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So this patience or this, uh, um, this character is, you know, character is something that we get to own that um, normally we may want something, we, we may cling to earthly things. And character is something that goes with you and you can use it every single day and be confident in it. And so that is why he uh, is encouraging this, is it builds character. We need character in our lives. If any of you, or sorry, we'll just go to verse 4, yeah, and there we are. So it produces character. I actually have a quote here in uh, the journaling side of my Bible. Uh, Chris, because Chris was just speaking on this, I, I think maybe two months ago, and he put in, uh, or I put in a quote that he said that pressure does not build character, it reveals it. And I, I really like that quote, but I'm going to just... In my opinion, I think it does both. I think if you have the correct attitude 
pressure definitely builds character. And it does reveal it, of course, but it really does produce good character. If you have the right mindset about it, and that mindset that the scriptures are talking about here is walking by faith. So the first part of the answer to the question of why is walking by faith important is it because it produces character. But as we continue, the next answer to why is walking by faith important is that it keeps us confident in the things that we know. You could just, you know, if you're taking notes, it keeps us confident. But I add the specific of what we know because we're not talking about, uh, if we just read it, in verse 5 it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, Uh, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we'll find that faith, walking by faith is important because it builds confidence in the things that we know. So without walking by faith, we are... You know, have you ever someone heard someone say, "I'm just a free spirit. I'm just a, a I'm free bird. I, you know, I just go where the wind takes me." And I, I think it's a little silly. You know, we have to have some things rooted, or else, you know, we're we're not growing. And the idea of growing is very, very important to us. But really important to us is the confidence in the things that we know. I think as we kind of reflect on the, uh, the statistics I was talking about, a lot of these young people don't have a confidence in what they know. And they're not taught how to have confidence in what they know other than what they're told. And the Bible is saying here very clearly that um, walking by faith introduces that confidence. I know I'm kind of speaking vague right now. There is a a reason why I'm talking about why it's important before we define it. But just be patient with me. We'll get there. It builds a confidence in the things that we know. So uh, just for example, if uh, a great example, we've been doing this Friday Night Fishbowl, and there's lots of questions in there that I have even put in that, you know, I'm sure 98% of the people in that study know the answer but I don't know the answer. And I think they're really important questions. But just because I'm putting that question in the fishbowl does not mean that I'm having an existential crisis about my faith. Walking by faith is taking the things that you know about the Lord. Remember, faith in general is taking uh, what you know about the nature, revelation, promises, and commands about the Lord and holding on to those even when something is confusing. So that confidence, but also, um, so it produces character, it uh, produces confidence. The other reason that walking by faith is important is because it proves us. So we're not going to shift over. You're going to go probably have to flip your page to another very familiar passage of James 2, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. This is a really interesting section, and I actually believe upon rereading and studying this book for the same time, that actually uh, supplements chapter 1 in the beginning. A lot of James, uh, all of these things, these uh, these virtues, are all uh, delivered 
to uh, the people that he was writing to to supply their faith. So he continues the thought and says, uh, starting in verse 14, uh, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and not works? Can his faith save him or preserve or prove, uh, prove the evidence of their faith? If a, and their practical faith, by the way, I believe. Not, we're not talking about their salvation. Works prove, if for the believer, works prove faith. Not necessarily salvation. The Bible does uh, claim that concept. It does. But practically speaking, and in the context here, we're talking about faith. And proving faith is important just because it's supposed to be real. So, in his faith, uh, preserve or prove him. Uh, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him the things uh, which are needed for the body, what does it profit? That's a really funny illustration. You You can imagine someone being in need, and you just being like, I really hope you get what you need. God bless, and walk away. That's not productive. It's not productive for the person that you are a testimony of, and it's not productive for you. Uh, So this is a a longer passage. Um, I'm going to cut a little bit forward for the sake of time. And uh, the writer of James really uh, kind of gives an example himself, starting down in verse 21, says, was Abraham our father was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Did you, do you see that faith was working together with his works and his, work, and his faith was made perfect? The, strict, the scripture was fulfilled, uh, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that man is justified or proved by works, and not by faith only. Uh, And likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers that were sent out the other way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So faith is profitable for salvation, but it is a beneficial thing for your fellow believers to see your faith because We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we need to grow and uh, work off each other. So faith is, it's important to prove your faith to your fellow believers so that they can grow and learn off of you. And also just so that, you know, again, like, you know, you're looking for something to be more personal. This is kind of a, a floaty idea. This isn't a theological idea, but it proves it to yourself. It reminds you that you are not, um, you are not, you are not, it's a good word, you're not believing things that you don't understand or that you haven't experienced. I understand that experience is always, we, we judge our experiences by the truth, but experiences can really prove to us that the truth is the truth, and that's a very, that could be a really impactful experience. So it is not, experience is not above truth, but it can be a really powerful thing for us 
to prove, uh, to, to be confident ourselves in the truth. And that is what we're talking about. Faith, walking by faith is important for these reasons. It produces character, confidence in the things that we know, and it proves us. And I, uh, it's very interesting. So a lot of film, uh, a lot of film uh, illustrations have been floating around. I felt like I had to deliver because I'm the movie guy around here. And I, I was reminded of a film, I call it a film personally. It's a really, it's an old movie too. It's 20 years old now. It's 20 years old. That's how old I feel since the movie is 20 years old. A little movie called Spider-Man 2. Now you might be chuckling. I highly encourage, if you haven't seen that movie in 20 years, give Spider-Man 2 another watch. It's actually a really good movie. You know, okay, so Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Duh. And at the end of Spider-Man 1 in 2002, he makes this big decision. He's going to uh, commit to being Spider-Man and leave uh, a lot of the personal things in his life aside so that he can be a hero. And it's like this great, like, whoa, like almost plot twist. But the beginning of Spider-Man 2, about the first half of Spider-Man 2, actually kind of punishes him for making that decision. He... You know, he realizes, oh, I, because I didn't, I chose not to fall in love with the girl that I like, uh, now she's getting married, and I don't have any chance to fall in love with her again. There's all sorts of things. He, uh, he has a, a broken relationship with his best friend. He is trying to take care of his elderly aunt who kind of raised him. He's trying to keep a job, and he's trying to pay his rent, and he's trying to do good in college. And he, uh, the first movie uh, punishes him in those areas because he chose to be a superhero and protect the city from crime. And at some point, uh, it's about the halfway point of the movie, the movie starts taking those things away entirely. And so it also kind of introduces an interesting idea where as long as Peter Parker wants to be Spider-Man, he'll get to have his powers, he'll have his powers. But... The second he starts going, I don't want to be Spider-Man anymore, he starts to lose his powers. So he decides after losing altogether some of these things that are very personal to him, he decides, okay, I, I, I'm done being Spider-Man. I, I, gotta, I, I want, why can't, there's a really good scene in the, in the movie actually where he's sitting alone in his apartment and he just says, why can't I have the things I want? I think everyone's asked that uh, before. So he does. He ditches Spider-Man, and there's this really corny scene. Again, it's a 2000s movie where he's just kind of walking down the street all like, yeah, I'm so happy that I'm no longer Spider-Man anymore. But now we get into the last bit of the movie, and he sees a burning building, and he realizes, oh, you know, the, this was a, the first movie had a great scene where the fire department couldn't get up into a building and save a baby, and he's Spider-Man, so he can get up in the building and save the baby. It's amazing. But now there's a scene where there's a baby up in a burning building. And he doesn't have his powers. He can't save those people. And then uh, the villain of the movie, Dr. Octopus, comes and kidnaps the girl that he loves. You know, she's, she's engaged to someone, but he still kind of cares about her platonically. And he's, he kidnaps her to, you know, hold her for hostage. And it's at that point that he realizes that being, you know, if he puts, he's got this life, this is kind of the way he's meant to live. These are his gifts. 
And if he sets those aside to have the things that he wants, yeah, maybe that's fine and good and everything. But the, um, the world will always come and affect his personal life in a way that only Spider-Man could fix it. Peter Parker can't fix his problems. So he decides that in the end, uh, being Spider-Man and losing those things, whether he gets those things or not, that is the life he needs to live. He is confident in the idea that that is the life he needs to live. He has faith that that's the way he has to live. And this is truly, I know it's a little corny, but this truly is the way that walking by faith is like and the discipleship life is like. We have so many things in our life, we have so many distractions that we uh, wish we could hold on to. There's so many ways I've heard so many of my friends say, the Bible is insufficient in solving this life problem for me. I can figure it out on my own. And the Bible says that's not true. The Lord has a plan for your life. He has answers for your life. And if you walk by faith and recognize that walking by faith is more important than the way you could solve your problems, you will have a tremendous amount of joy and a tremendous amount of things that a tremendous amount of reward, personal reward, and you'll be pleasing the Lord. So the question I have to ask us is, could we answer the question of why walking by faith is important with our own lives? Can we say from our own personal experience, again, we, we know truth is, not, truth is not lower than experience, but can we say with our own experience that faith is more important than any, uh, any other lifestyle we would do? Uh, do we believe that it produces character? Do we show that it produces character? Do we show that we, can be, that we are confident in the nature, revelation, commands, and promises of God. Are we confident in those things? And can we say that it proves us? Can we say of each other that it proves us? If we can't, let us work to find the answer and, and do so, that we may do so in confidence. So that is why, why walking by faith is important. The next question that the Bible uh, answers about walking by faith is what does it look like? So we've kind of gone a little backwards, but uh, we have done so just because it is important to just kind of get it out of the way. So now we are asking, what does it look like? Because it's a little bit of a modifier to the original strict faith definition. It's an active term. So we're going to turn to another very familiar passage, Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to just briefly, uh, because Hebrews 10 kind of continues a thought from Hebrews 9, and we're not going to read Hebrews 9, but it is important to just understand. I'm just going to refresh our memory. Hebrews 9, the first half of it describes, uh, it kind of says, hey, so remember the temple? Wasn't the temple like really cool? It It had like a tent. It had, like, it had like a bowl, and there's like those priests, and they've got cool robes, and they do that routine and stuff like that. The second half says, well, understand. 
And he uses a really, I thought, really fascinating word to describe it. He says, all, those, all that stuff, they're just copies. They're just copies. So not perfect copies like we think of it today. Copies in the sense that it's not the real thing. And it doesn't work like the real thing. So then in the second half, it says, and so Christ came because those were copies. Christ came and gave us the real thing, the true kingdom of God, the way the kingdom of God truly works. All this stuff could not work the way you think it works because it's just a copy. Or like, a, actually, we just read in Fishbowl, we were talking about the Sabbath, and it says the same thing about the Sabbath in Colossians, that it is a shadow of things to come. It's not something that we're meant to practice today, it was a shadow of things to come. So, uh, so that's the context from Hebrews 9. So if we come into Hebrews 10, it gets even more specific. It expands all of the things that uh, did not work and were just copies. And through it, it answers the question of what does walking by faith look like by starting the answer as walking by faith is letting God work. Dot, dot, dot. Very important dot, dot, dot. It's an incomplete sentence, and we'll, get, we'll continue the sentence. But this, the beginning of the answer is walking by faith is letting God work. That seems like a pretty familiar idea to us. It says if we uh, just kind of blast through uh, uh, the beginning of chapter 10 because the whole, th- the whole thing kind of conveys the thought rather than an individual verse, so thank you for bearing with me. Um, I'm, I will jump around a little bit as we need. It starts in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. Hey, it brings that thought from Colossians. And not the very image of those things. So it doesn't work the same way. The temple and all these things don't work the same way. Uh, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So... Uh, And if you go down to verse 4, it says, It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So this was the way that God said that uh, the Jews' sin would be covered, not washed away. Covered if they sacrificed an animal at the temple. And that is uh, a very personal thing. And, you know, I'm sure uh, some of the former Catholics in the room can attest to some level that working for the perception of working for your salvation at best is very, it's a personal thing. It's something that you are in control of. It's something that you are giving of yourself. You are giving something of yourself. And so in that way, you feel as if, you are doing something and that you really have a good gauge on what, you know, how good you are. And I, I think, you know, my father has my aunts and uncles and I'm sure the Rublos have lots of family. You know, I'm not to call people out, but lots of people who, that's a big reason why they don't want to live by faith, walk by faith, place their faith in Christ because it's a very personal thing. It's a, a personal ritual. You are giving, if I, had to sacrifice my dog. I mean, my dog doesn't really like me. 
but <laughs> if I had to sacrifice my dog, he's got a cute little puppy face, so it'd be, you know, at least that, even though he'd be like, oh, fine, I'm away from my, my owner. I, you know, it, it would be a personal thing. I am giving my dog, who I give unnecessary belly rubs to, that he doesn't like, and I, I give him, it is part of me. And that is trying to work for your salvation. That's working, actually, as we're going to see, working in the wrong way. And if we continue on, so it makes very clear, if you thought that animal sacrifices washed your sins away, you are wrong. And uh, so if we continue, uh, we'll go down to verse 11. It says, and, and this is a familiar verse, if every priest... Or so, actually, no, verse 10, very, very important. Verse 10 says, By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering uh, repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You were wrong if you thought that they would take away sins. They cover them. Uh, but this man, after this one man being Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. So faith, walking by faith, is letting God work, dot, dot, dot. Letting God do his work. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about that stuff did not work. Jesus' work worked. So we let God work. And actually, Larry kind of touched on this in his previous two-parter, that uh, faith is remembering that you don't don't have any agency. You never had any agency. And we're actually going to see that now Uh, in verse... We're going to, I'm going to continue to verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins uh, and their lawless deeds will I remember no more. This is, we have to remember that the Lord worked as well. And remembering that is a clear, it is an extremely important aspect of walking by faith after you're saved. And Larry kind of touched on this. So, what does walking by faith look like? It is letting God work dot, dot, dot. And the continuation, as we're going to see in verse 19, is, you know, it's letting God work dot, dot, dot while you work. Work a different way. Not for your salvation, but work a different way. If you are waiting on the Lord to work in your practical life, you have to continue your life. You cannot sit and let wait for the Lord to work in your to make your life perfect for you. So while you work, God is working. He's done the work. Now you work not for your salvation but continue to work your life waiting for things that you are waiting on from the Lord while you work. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness. So since we know these things about, the gods, uh, about God, since we know that he 
has worked. Having the boldness to enter the, holy, uh, the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance, of confidence, not full, I, I just free-spiritedly, I believe, I don't understand, having full assurance, full confidence, um, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience to, uh, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast, fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So, uh, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, for not, for, uh, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together or neglecting our gathering, neglecting our company, uh, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. That's an important one. As, it, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. So, uh, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So there is a lot for us to do and, um, and work at that is not salvation dependent. But we have to do. It's very like James was saying, it builds all of those things, builds confidence, uh, 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 the, uh, you know, it builds these things. We have a lot to do. And you know, we have to boldly approach the Lord. We have to build each other up. Those are things for us to do. And those are simple things, too. If you, ha- if you don't know what your spiritual gift is or what the what Lord's will for your life is, the Lord's will is going to be another sermon I might do this year. But if you don't know those things, th- that's the, the starting point. And it's kind of the baseline as well. So faith is letting God work up there while you work. You can't sit and wait for the Lord to make your life perfect for you. You continue to do the things you're supposed to do, and the blessings will come. Blessings just don't come from waiting for the Lord to beam them into your brain. So, letting God work while you work, dot, dot, dot. And the third part of the answer to this question, and wait. Be patient and not quit. So, and wait. So, if we continue now, we were, uh, it said, let not forsaking the, for assembly of our, uh, the, the, for assembly, the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. We start talking about that some. In verse 26, it says, For if we sin willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. So, it's kind of a complicated verse. But what he's saying is, if don't be like the people who receive the knowledge. I'm not talking about receiving the truth, but receiving the knowledge of the truth. They, they hear perhaps the gospel. They hear the gospel, and they understand it. Like, for example, King Agrippa. King Agrippa understood exactly what Paul was talking about when he was witnessing to him. But at the last moment, he said, eh, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And he says, don't be 
like the people who, when they receive the truth, they turn from it because they go, well, I still have my animal sacrifices. I'd kind of rather be in control of myself. I still have the Eucharist. I still have, you know, whatever it be. I still have those things. And it's honestly a little more personal to me. And it's, I feel it's more productive to gauge how I'm doing. So I have these things. And writer of Hebrews is saying, don't be like these people because um, it says in verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy of the testimony of two or three witnesses. So, oh, and it, it continues, this is really important. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will, be, uh, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant uh, by which he was sacrificed, uh, sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. So, listen, the only thing that carries over from the Old Testament law is that if you reject the gospel, you die. It's the only thing that carries over. And so, he continues uh, down uh, to verse 32, but, instead, recall the former things, in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, partly while you were made, uh, sorry, I just reread the same verse, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that uh, you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves at walking by faith. So, he's saying here, uh, you know, if your faith is rooted in yourself, sorry, Buster, because the thing that you rooted your faith in didn't even work the way you thought it did in the first place. So, if you're struggling, don't be like the people who hear the gospel and give up before they make it personal in their life. They, can't all, they also can't turn back to the thing that they thought. They, they can't even turn back to their vice because it doesn't work the way they thought it did either. Be patient. You have, um, he says it right here. Um, um, I'm going to re-scan my eyes here. Don't, uh, cat, uh, Sorry, it's verse 34. You had compassion on me, uh, knowing that you have a better and enduring passion for yourselves in heaven. That's the thing you can hold on to when you're going, "Mm, I don't know if this is really working out the way I wanted to. You have an enduring passion. You have these things that the Lord has worked it. He says this whole time. Think about it. You, you, your faith got you through tribulation, like James is talking about. Your faith got you through that. And look at the way I was in prison, and you came and ministered to me. That meant so much to me. And you can be confident in that. That's the Lord working. If you're looking for the Lord working, that's it. You worked. So continue working. Continue working in your patience in the thing that you want 
out of your faith, out of your belief, you will have it. The Lord will provide it to you. So what does walking by faith look like? What is the definition of it? I say it is letting God work while you work and wait. That's what walking by faith is. Um, Just as a a quick little bonus to this passage, um, this is kind of where all of that leads up to Hebrews 11.1, this famous verse that I think a lot of people uh, quote. uh, A lot of people kind of see it as a definition, and I I think when you look at it as a a definition, it's kind of confusing. And in context, he's kind of more saying about faith that, see, this is what faith does for us. So having known all that, Animal sacrifices had no way you thought they did. So you need to remember that the Lord has provided for you and continue working. You need to build each other up and be patient for the things you are looking for, for the things that the Lord is bringing to you. And so then begins Hebrews 1. All that is in the context now. Hebrews 1 says, now, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the, thing, the evidence of things not seen. If you kind of take that as a definition, it's a little confusing. It's, it kind of uses words in a way that we don't really use them today. And really, you just have to understand that, first of all, the Bible uses the word hope to kind of mean anticipate. Not like, oh, I just, like the dictionary, uh, Merriam-Webster says that hope, the way we use hope is to want something to happen to be true. It's a pretty true definition of how we use that word. But the Bible uses the word hope to mean anticipate something that you know is coming. So faith is the true, it is the the true things that we know while we are anticipating those things to be fulfilled. So that's what faith does for us. It gives us things that we know while we're waiting. And uh, it is the evidence of things not seen. So it is, you know, as the reminder of the things that we know are true, even though we don't see them. Not the other way around. Some people kind of read it as um, faith and floaty faith is, um, it is, uh, I don't see things, but faith is all the proof I need that they exist. That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that it gives you evidence of different things that you have seen evidence for while you don't see them working. So that is what faith does for us. And so it is in that context that we get the hall of faith. This is how all of these people lived. Uh, they, uh, were, they were letting God work while they still worked. He details all the little things that they did in working through faith. And they waited. They didn't get. He has a, there's a very interesting verse in 11 where it says uh, they didn't even get to see the things that they were working for. They didn't even get to see Abraham didn't even get to see all of his descendants. He, Noah didn't even get to see the earth get totally repopulated. Um, uh, uh, for example, Moses didn't get to see the Israelites going to the promised land. They didn't even get to see it, and they still did it. So then chapter 12 begins in context of all that. It says, therefore, so, uh, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And every sin that so easily ensnares us, most personal sins, let's take the, pers- the sins that are, are serious weaknesses and replace them with thing- the aspects of our faith that have become personal 
through these things that we have done. And uh, let us run with endurance the great race that is set before us. Let us walk by faith. It is a race. Um, I'm also reminded of another film. This one is not just a film in my opinion. This one's a film. If you haven't seen this movie, you really owe it to yourself to see it. A movie called Beautiful Mind. Uh, Beautiful Mind. Russell Crowe plays a, excuse me, a math savant in the 50s. And he, because of his savantness, uh, he starts uh, studying to become a math professor. And the first half of the movie is really interesting. It kind of, it's like it's a wonderful life in a way where it kind of shows his life working out for him. He, you know, he gets a position as like a, you know, he's, he's learning how to be a professor, meets Jennifer Connelly and gets to marry her, so that's a giant blessing. And he, uh, everything is kind of working out for him. But then, as the movie continues, a, C, a CIA agent, uh, Ed Harris plays a CIA agent who kind of comes around and he's like, you know, Russell Crowe. I don't remember the guy's name, but it's based on a true story. Uh, Ed Harris comes to Russell Crowe and goes, Russell Crowe, we need your math savant-ness because the Soviets are trying to launch nuclear rockets at us and we have to decipher their codes to stop them. You owe it to your country to help us stop it. And so Russell Crowe kind of goes, oh, right, I, uh, I suppose I shall... Uh, I shall assist you. And they go and they start. He, he, he hops in the car with Russell Crowe and Russell Crowe, sorry, Ed Harris. And Ed Harris kind of takes him to this weird, empty place and leaves him there and walks away. And Russell Crowe's like, what in the world? And his family comes and finds him and goes, what are you doing out here? And he goes, well, the CIA agent was right over there. He left and they're like, what CIA agent? We only saw you walking. So now it's a thriller. So the whole movie, for about the first, I unfortunately have to spoil this movie for you. I'm so sorry because it's so good on the first watch through. It's one of those twist movies. I still really encourage you watch it. i got to spoil it for you, though, because you think for the first half of the movie that Russell Crowe is this massive savant that the CIA is messing with him to see like if he's worthy to help them. He's, they're like working with his mind. But the big reveal of the movie is, you know, Russell Crowe is like, he's flipping out because he thinks he has a duty to save his country. And his wife keeps not saying, uh, no, you're crazy. She keeps going, why do you, why, why do you, why are you obsessed with this? You have a perfect life. You have the perfect, um, you know, job. You have me. You have all this stuff. And why do you keep throwing it away for this thing? What threat? And he's going, no, the threat is real. And he's going, no, the threat is not real. And the reveal of the movie is it turns out that Russell Crowe, in his savant mind, is also schizophrenic. So he's had Russell Crowe, or sorry, Ed Harris as a CIA agent, screaming in his face that he's got to save his country. And he's got other people that he randomly keeps seeing. And it's like really weird. But it turns out uh, Russell Crowe is schizophrenic. And Ed Harris is not a real person. He is a representation in Russell Crowe's savant mind that is a personification of this desire Russell Crowe has 
to have a, f- a, a life fulfilled. He, it's this, uh, this wrestling he has in his mind that he has to save his country in order to matter. And his wife keeps telling him, no, you don't have to save the country to matter. Do the right thing in your life. That's how it matters. And so there's just this beautiful scene at the end of the movie, or leading up to the end of the movie, where he's got Ed Harris and all these other weird people. He keeps just like appearing in the room with him, every room he, excuse me, he walks into. And it's really weird. But uh, he eventually learns, no, my wife is right. I've got to live, I've got to live the life I'm meant to live, not the one that I think I need to live. And so the movie ends, and this is amazing shot of him. He's accepted into the college as a professor, and he, uh, they honor him because he's a savant, and he's, he's, little, he's on the, the uh, mental handicap spectrum, but he still succeeds, and so they honor him, and he's, you know, he's, uh, he proceeds after accepting an, an award, and uh, he looks, and you see Ed Harris and all these other personifications of how he looks at himself just kind of standing there at him like, you should, you should have just, I can't believe you, how weak. But so the movie is telling us that even though those things will always be there, those insecurities will always be there, but uh, Russell Crowe has the strength to live in spite of those things following him around and challenging him. That is exactly what walking by faith like. Walking by faith. We have so many, especially the young men in our culture, so many distractions. And we all, all human beings, desire the, uh, the ability to solve their own problems their way without someone telling them what to do or be in control. And, but the Lord has put a life, a productive, practical life in front of us that if we just let him work and continue working and living our life, not waiting for him to solve our problems for us. We just continue to do it and be patient. We will be blessed. And we will bless him. We will continue. We will have produced something for the Lord. So the last, you know, uh, the last question I have is this, the same thing. Could we answer the question, of why, uh, of what walking by faith looks like with our own lives. Can we say, could we say, are, are we trying to figure out our life with our own impulses, on our own merit? Are we trying to figure it out? Are we trying to be perfect? Are we trying to do all these things based on us? Or are we patient and see them work and stay the course, like Larry said in his, uh, his previous message? Do we stay the course? Or um, are we waiting for the Lord to make our lives perfect for us? Of course the Lord works in our life the way that we can. But that doesn't mean that he will do it based on, it doesn't mean that it will all just appear right there if if you put yourself in a room doing nothing. So if we cannot answer this question with our lives, let us. Let us understand the answer to this question and let us live it out. Um, let's, again, looking at these two answers to these questions that the Bible answers, let us make them personal and integrate them into our lives. 
rather than like using looking at the the declining attendance numbers, you know that we see frequently, and kind of thinking about them in a fearful or or like trying to solve them in a seeker-sensitive way or something like that. Let us look and understand that a lot of these young people, and even some, maybe some of the old people, might have just never been taught in some cases. We know that there's some, some bad reasons that they put out there. Like one of them was, you know, they, they leave some lame reasons. But let's acknowledge, if we're giving them credit, that they may not have been taught how to live their life by walking by faith, and how to make their own faith personal for them. And we do that by doing it ourselves in our own life. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Father, it seems like kind of a, uh, kind of an insignificant thing to be grateful for, but we're very grateful that um, our our faith is something that we... uh, have as value in our life. We're grateful that you give that to us and that it doesn't have to be impersonal. The Bible does not say that our faith has to be impersonal or based in nothing. It's based in what we know about you, the nature, revelation, promises, and commands of you. We love you and we thank you very much. We ask that you would take us home safely. Thank you to my assembly for letting me go quite a bit over. And I, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.